Hello and welcome to the Budget Night edition of the HSF Tax Podcast. And joining me late in the evening, Professor Graham Cooper and partner Ryan Leslie. Ryan dialing in from far north Queensland, showing his true commitment to the cause of tax. Welcome, Graham. Welcome, Ryan. Hello, Toby. Thanks, Toby. Come on, Graham. It's only 10.30. I'm fired, <laughs> let me tell you. That's good. That is good. Okay, so the second ALP budget in six months, like deja vu all over again. So there are a number of pre-announcement measures which covered off a number of the big issues, such as PRRT, which we'll get to in due course. But there were a couple of surprise measures that we want to run through. To kick us off, Ryan, why don't you take us through the changes to Part 4A, the general anti-avoidance provision? Yeah, thanks, Toby. So I think the change to Part 4A is something that we certainly didn't see coming and there hadn't been any talk about in the market prior to the budget. There's two changes that have been announced with unquantifiable revenue impacts. The first is to expand Part 4A to cover schemes that result in a taxpayer accessing a lower withholding tax rate. And that seems to be potentially looking at closing a gap where the current definition of tax benefit only applies to schemes which result in a particular amount not being subject to withholding tax at all as compared to being subject to lower rates of withholding tax. It's not entirely clear whether there are particular structures that are the target of this change. It could uh, encompass aspects such as treaty shopping, although obviously post the multilateral instrument, there are a number of treaties with substantial principal purpose tests or limitation of benefits articles. And it also may apply to structures where there are invested debt in trust structures and particularly managed investment trusts where payment of interest on the on unit holder loans would be subject to a lower rate of withholding tax than distributions on the units. The other change that was announced was potentially more substantial and wide ranging, which was to amend the concept of purpose for Part 4A so that it not only Part 4A not only applies where a scheme has a dominant purpose of obtaining a tax benefit, which is defined as an Australian tax benefit, but also applies to schemes that do achieve an Australian tax benefit, but have the dominant purpose of achieving a foreign tax benefit. So that's likely addressing what, at least anecdotally, has been an argument run previously for multinational groups in relation to schemes where the ATO is looking to apply Part 4A, that ultimately Australian aspects of a global restructure are relatively small in terms of dollar value and the tax outcomes, and that really the drivers are achieving efficiencies in foreign tax. So we assume it will likely look to essentially align aspects of the purpose test with the purpose test that applies for DPT, but has the potential to expand the coverage of Part 4A quite substantially. Thoughts, Graham? Oh, look, I think this is just cleaning up the issues. It's the new black for the ATO and Treasury. The idea that they don't want people to get out of jail on the basis of you should see what we've done to the other guys. The assumption here is your purpose is just as evil if you're attempting to beat up on the tax system of some other country. But it's important to not get too carried away with this, all that the ATO will end up doing is cancelling the Australian tax benefit. Even if your dominant purpose was going after the foreign tax benefit, Australia has nothing to do with that. All we do is say the Australian tax benefit, modest as it is, is still on the table and we can go after it. Yes, and, and the withholding tax changes? Well, I think the withholding tax changes are interesting because 
the way the concept of tax benefit is drafted for most other kinds of tax benefits in the list, it's referring to a marginal amount. It's either the whole thing or a bit of the thing, and we can go after that. We can include the bit that's missing, even if some of the amount is already included. Withholding tax was always different. It was always an all or nothing thing. You were either liable to withholding tax or you weren't. And if you were liable to withholding tax, it didn't matter what the rate was. Uh, And so this drafting says, now we care about the rate. So if you've worked out a way to get your rate down from 30% to 15 or from 15 down to 10, then we're interested in going after you. And so that's a significant change. I'm not sure about the other defect in there. It isn't a marginal computation. It's still a the whole of the sum is either in jeopardy or it's not, which is, again, just a bit of a peculiarity about the way the rules work for withholding tax. And, and this measure doesn't seem to address that. We'll have to wait until we see the draft legislation. I noticed the ATO tweeted out all the measures announced tonight in the budget. I did reply requesting a bit further guidance. So far, I haven't got a response. I think that might be the definition of optimism. So moving on, one of the other measures that was announced in the lead up was the changes to stimulate the build to rent sector, very hot in Melbourne. So the two tax incentives that are announced or were announced were increasing depreciation rate from 2.5% to 4% for new build to rent projects where construction commences after 9 May 2023 and reducing the MIT withholding tax rate from 30% to 15% on fund payments made after 1 July 2024 to foreign residents attributable to income from newly constructed residential build-to-rent projects. So the announcement assumed that build-to-rent projects qualify for MIT status, which I think was a little surprising given that the ATO had mixed views in the past on whether residential property investments, including BTR, could be made primarily for the purposes of deriving rent and therefore not a trading business. So the government tonight has announced that requirements are that there must be at least 50 dwellings. Uh, The dwellings must be retained for at least 10 years before being sold. The landlord must offer lease terms for at least three years. And there'll be a requirement to include a specific proportion of affordable housing in the development. So uh, we'll wait to see what that happens. But no doubt developers will be very keen to put another skyscraper in South Bank. The other measure that was announced was in relation to the current clean building MIT rules. Effectively, those would be extended so that... Effectively, qualifying MITs will now be allowed to hold data centres and warehouses where they meet the designated energy efficiency standard. The current definition limits the measure to commercial buildings that are an office, hotel or shopping centre. That applies to buildings where construction commences after tonight and apply to fund payments from 1 July 2025. And secondly, the budget announced that the buildings had to meet a higher six-star energy efficiency rating to qualify for the new MIT rules, whereas the current level is five-star or 5.5, depending on the rating system. So that's the real estate measures. On the international tax front, Graham, 
treasurer recommitted us to Pillar 2. Can you run us through the developments there? So there's two significant bits to the budget statement, Toby. It's pretty clear that the Australian government just can't get enough OECD. We, we love the OECD, love its work, and we have decided that we're going to be an early mover in this space. And so Treasury has set out the timeline for the start of the Pillar 2 measures and, more importantly, has committed Australia to having a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax. Now, this top-up tax levied at the local level has become the flavour of the month in, in Pillar 2 land, basically because it allows a country to um, say, if there's any top-up tax to be paid, we're going to collect it. We're not going to let other countries eat our lunch. So the incentive is obvious for a country to say, we will enact a domestic top-up tax that will have the effect of switching off the Pillar 2 measures that other countries might be inclined to trigger. In Treasury's October 2022 consultation paper, they raised the prospect that we would do this, but there was no firm commitment. It was just an exploratory discussion. Tonight, the Treasurer has said, yes, we're going to do it. We will have a 15% domestic minimum top-up tax that will operate alongside the current corporate tax rules. So that's a new commitment from the government. Second thing is they've committed to a timetable. The timetable is pretty ambitious. So we're going to come at it in two stages. The first is for income years starting on or after 1 January 2024. So some early balancing companies will be worried about this. The income inclusion rule and the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax rules will both start. And the second bit of the puzzle, the undertaxed profits rule, will start one year later. So for income years starting on or after 1 January 2025. Now, the start date of 1 January 2024, I think is going to mean we, we will be seeing an exposure draft pretty soon. It'll presumably be out towards in the second half of this year. It's interesting in the budget papers, there's almost no money in this measure. It's just a nuisance. The budget estimate is around $370 million in revenue and about $100 million to administer the thing. It is hugely expensive for taxpayers and the ATO, but we're going to do it just because we're good corporate citizens. I was trying to work out... So they do say there may be a couple of Australian companies that may be caught by the domestic minimum top-up tax. And I was trying to work out where that might arise. So one of, the, yeah, one of the, I think one of the reasons people have taken their eye off the ball a little bit is this uh, hope that 30% times our tax base is always going to be more than 15% times the tax base of the of the Pillar 2 measures. And so our Australian domestic corporate tax is always going to be large enough to wipe out any Pillar 2 calculation. But but if you think about some scenarios, for example, conduits. So for a long time, the Australian government was desperate 
to set up Australia as a regional headquarters. And so we've got the conduit foreign income rules. So we switch off Australian corporate tax. We switch off Australian withholding tax. If you were foolish enough to be tempted by those carrots and you set up a regional headquarters in Australia, you're going to have a real problem with Pillar 2, let me tell you. There are other scenarios that are going to be, I think, problematic, Toby. There are rollover rules in Pillar 2, but they don't match 124M and 125 in our rules. So you may well find that there will be some very big lumpy transactions where there won't be Australian tax payable, but there won't be an equivalent rollover available to you in in Pillar 2 land. So I think it will be a rare case where people will find that 30% times the Australian tax base isn't enough to get you out of jail. But I don't know that you can rule it out completely. All right. We'll wait and see when the draft legislation is released. Probably close to December for a start date in one Jan. Okay, Ryan, a couple of other measures for large super funds. Yeah, thanks, Toby. So over the last few years, there's been quite a lot of angst in the superannuation sector after the non-arms length expenses rules were added to the non-arms length income rules for superannuation funds. And there are a couple of concerns. Broadly, those rules operated to essentially tax certain parts of the income of a super fund at a penalty rate rather than the concessional 15% rate where the income was inflated due to expenses being incurred by the fund at below length rates. And there was some specific guidance on the concerns that the HO and Treasury had, and really they were focused on the SMSF sector and the provision of services to funds from essentially members, accounting services and the like. And there'd been a couple of periods of consultation in relation to the changes and how they apply. There was a most recent round of consultation was in January of this year, which proposed exempting large regulated funds from the non-arms length expense rule so far as it relates to general expenditure, which was quite welcome news since the concept was if the fund uh, incurred any general expenditure, which could have been things like accounting and audit fees and tax advice, that was below arm's length, then the consequence was that the entire income of the fund was subject to the penalty rate of tax as compared to the specific expenses aspect of the rules where the proposal from January was the amount subject to tax at the penalty rates would be five times the amount of the expense. So welcome news in the budget for large funds is that they'll now be exempt from both the general and specific expense elements of those changes. And also for the smaller regulated funds and SMSFs in that the penalty aspect of the non-arms length expense rule has been reduced so that the amount subject to the penalty rate of tax is limited to twice the amount of the non-arms length expenditure rather than five times. Yes, that has been welcomed by our large industry fund superannuation clients. So the only other measure that was announced that's of, of interest was the government formally abandoning the patent box regime that had been announced by Josh Frydenberg um, in successive budgets. But even though it would have a concessional tax rate of 15% meeting the Pillar 2 requirements, the government has decided it will not be proceeding with this measure, which I think will be a disappointment for some of the larger corporates, particularly in the pharma space, who are looking at that measure. The only other thing is probably more what wasn't announced. 
We were hoping to get some clarity on the consultations on the changes to capitalisation rules. The consultation has been ongoing and there's been quite strong representations that the government should wind back their changes. Still waiting to hear on the um, the franking credit measures which are before the Senate and also the country-by-country country reporting requirements and the exposure draft on that. And finally, Graham, there's also the announced but unenacted measures from prior governments, which we're still waiting to hear on those. Yes, Toby. I think the big one that people will be sweating on is the proposal to codify a, a new test of residence for companies. This has been a bit of a nightmare. The ATO has been, I think, sensible and trying to smooth the transition to the new rules by creating what they call transitional relief. They did say earlier this year that they can only extend the transitional relief until 30 June 2023. And so people were hoping the government would finally get their act together in the budget and say, here's, there will be new rules and here's what they'll look like. But they haven't done that. Uh, and so now somebody's got to blink or else uh, taxpayers are going to find that and life after 30 June 2023 will be a bit difficult. There are a bunch of other projects hanging around from the Board of Tax and from Treasury in relation to residents for individuals, CGT rollovers, Division 7A, changes to employee share schemes, and we're still none the wiser about what's going to happen to any of them. We'll have to keep a watching brief on all those measures and more as the year develops. And joining us now in Perth, Nick Higgett, partner. How are you going, Nick, on budget night? There's been some interesting changes, Toby, so uh, a few things to talk about. Now, the one that was announced in advance, dropped on Sunday, the PRRT changes. What happened there, Nick? I think it's safe to say that the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax or PRT changes didn't come as a surprise. There was some speculation about this and it's clear that industry had been consulting with the government. Neither side seems particularly happy with the outcome, so perhaps a good deal was done. And the main change was really to address public concern that for large LNG projects, PRT receipts seem years away. And just to give some context, this is actually how the tax is meant to work. But obviously, when people don't see the money rolling in, they start to get concerned. So all expenditure upstream of the taxing point, including for exploration, is fully deductible. And everything is immediately expensed. There is no concept of depreciation under the PRT, which otherwise is effectively a profit-based tax. This expenditure is able to be carried forward and it's augmented at varying rates depending on the type of expenditure and when it was incurred. And it's only when all this expenditure has been exhausted that PRT starts to be payable. Um, the idea is that the taxpayer should first get a reasonable return on investment, hence the augmentation, before the tax commences to be payable. Anyhow, the simple political fix to all this is to effectively limit deductions each year to 90% of assessable receipts in effect, a minimum annual tax. This applies seven years from first production and it only applies to LNG projects. The denied deductions are carried forward at the long-term bond rate, not as generous as the usual augmentation rates on offer. 
and really reflecting the idea that this is just a prepayment of future tax. As you say, it's just a, effectively a bring forward of the tax receipts that would otherwise be payable unless there may be some circumstances where there may not have been PWOT payable on, on marginal projects. Yes, that's right. Obviously, taxpayers keep that information very tightly held, but there has been speculation, at least in the press from time to time, that some LNG producers may never have paid the PRT, and this should alleviate concerns around that. One thing to bear in mind is that because the PRT is a project-based tax, uh, you are effectively allowed to carry back expenditure at the end of the project to prior years. And so when these projects are closed down, the government potentially needs to write a cheque and refund some of the PRT to offset those closing down deductions, which has been a long-standing feature of the PRT. As Jim Chalmers said in respect of the superannuation changes, that's future treasurer problem, not his. Now, that was all announced on Sunday, but there was a surprise announcement in the budget overturning the full federal court decision in Shell. Run us through that one, Nick. Yes, happy to. And I should say... Are you sure you're happy you about it? A, <laughs> I'm not happy about it. It's, uh, it's, I would say it was a surprise. The ATO clearly didn't like the decision the full federal court basically dismantled ATO positions that they'd been running with for years. And these concerns must have been taken to Treasury, who've reacted with this change. It effectively looks to target a couple of areas of the decision that were obviously causing some consternation. One was what you might say was an unintended consequence, which was that because the ATO lost so soundly on what the meaning of expiration is, that effectively had flowing implications for how you would interpret that for petroleum resource rent tax. And the ATO refused to accept this. Indeed, I think they put something on the website just effectively saying, oh, the shell was a income tax case, so it has nothing to do with PRT, which I think everyone thought was a quite difficult position to sustain. And obviously the ATO must have agreed because they've gone to Treasury, it would seem, and had the law changed. So, so effectively, to change it, in the words of the announcement, change it as a to how it was always intended to apply, I think is... I think always intended to apply in the eyes of the ATO, uh, although right, perhaps yes. not in the eyes of the full federal court. It was pretty clear what they thought expiration meant, and one assumes that was what the, the policymakers also intended at the time. In any event, and somewhat disturbingly, they have therefore retrospectively amended or proposing to amend what expiration means all the way back to August 2013, which is when the ATO first put out some guidance on this topic, expressing the view that expiration had a narrower view or had a narrower meaning than what it might otherwise thought to have. This is relevant in the PRT context because expiration expenditure is able to be transferred to other projects. So it is one of the few exceptions to the project based nature of the PRT. And so this had flow-on implications. We are aware that some taxpayers had launched requests with the ATO to now be able to transfer that expenditure. And potentially we could have seen PRT receipts reducing. So hence the direction to shut that one down. In relation to the other aspects of the Shell case, they really related to 
the depreciation regime so far as it applies to mining, quarrying or prospecting rights or just really mining tenements or petroleum tenements. And effectively, that goes to two aspects. One aspect of the decision in Shell was a quite sensible decision that you use an asset for depreciation purposes in the sense of a mining or petroleum tenant effectively just by holding it, which was contrary to the ATO's views that you had to effectively utilise the inherent nature of the rights in order to be able to use the mining tenement or petroleum tenement, which would mean that you would effectively have to be something that you couldn't otherwise lawfully do without the tenement. And this has previously led to some disputes with the ATO. It was thought that Shell might have cleared this up, but it now seems that we're back to you'll have to show when you first use the tenement in order to be able to start depreciating it. And it may not be sufficient if you're not actually doing things on the tenement. You're just advancing the project back at the office. That may not be sufficient to commence depreciating the tenement, which seems a strange outcome. The other part of it came out of the ATO's argument that some of the tenements in Shell couldn't be depreciated because they were related to interests that were acquired before 2001. And tenements acquired before 2001 are generally not able to be depreciated. The court had little time for the ATO's arguments around this. And I think the ATO and Treasury are a little bit concerned about the potential flowing impacts of that. So it seems there's a further measure addressed at ensuring the integrity of those transitional rules, it would seem. Although it's a little bit hard to decipher from the announcement. So we'll just have to watch for further announcements on that one. Yes, not the only thing on which... The announcement was brief and unclear. But anyway, thank you for that, Nick. Very much appreciated. I shall let you get back to finalising our budget briefing. But thank you, and we will talk soon. Thanks very much. All right, 11 o'clock on budget night. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Toby. Uh, Once again, thank you, Ryan. I really do appreciate you coming in on your leave. Thanks, Toby. Where else would you be on budget night? (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, Night of nights. All right. Thank you, everyone, and we'll talk soon.